Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The 2024 presidential campaign trail heating up ahead of the July 4th holiday. What former President Trump said in South Carolina as President Biden plans to go there this week. Foot traffic heavy in Washington, D.C., leading up to Independence Day celebrations. We take a trip to a famous memorial in the city. A Democratic senator talks about a crisis among men, adding that we can't ignore that there are biological differences between men and women. The Biden administration says it will begin adding another 20 miles to the border wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. We hear from a top immigration expert to get his analysis. And Israeli forces say they're trying to uproot a terror haven in Palestine with the effort focused in Janine. What we can expect to come out of Israel's new military operation. Amid the July heat, presidential candidates are ramping up their campaigns. Trump drew a crowd in South Carolina over the weekend. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. The 2024 presidential campaign trail heating up ahead of July 4th holiday. Former President Trump marked a return to massive rallies this past weekend, speaking to some 50,000 supporters in South Carolina. There's nowhere else I'd rather be to kick off the 4th of July weekend than right here on Main Street with thousands of proud, hardworking South Carolina. The huge crowd packed the streets of downtown Pickens, a small conservative town with just 3,400 residents, and also marked the first rally that Trump held after his federal indictment in June. We need our independence back. And Trump also applauded the recent Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action and student loans. We appointed nearly 300 federal judges and three great Supreme Court justices. They merit based system of education. How big is that? All this as Trump's leading contender in the GOP race, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, also spoke at the same event as Trump just days ago at an event held by Moms for Liberty. 2024 is going to be the year when the parents across this country finally fight back. And as GOP candidates are ramping up their campaign events, President Biden is also going on what the White House is calling an Invest in America tour. This Thursday, President Biden is also traveling to South Carolina, the battleground state in which a slew of GOP candidates, including Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, DeSantis and Trump, have all held campaign events in the past few weeks. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. And what better way to celebrate the Independence Day holiday than visiting the heart of the nation among our historic monuments? That's where thousands are today, including NTD's Molina Weiskup. Foot traffic is heavy at the Thomas Jefferson Memorial. Visitors gather around a massive 129-foot-tall marble structure. In the founder's hand, the Declaration of Independence. When you walk in there and it's huge, it's just very exhilarating almost. <laughs> American citizens and tourists alike come right here to soak in the heritage and social fabric of our country. Let's hear from them how the legacy of Jefferson still resonates centuries later. He is one of the greatest 
persons I can ever, ever think of besides Lincoln himself who set the slaves free that he wanted freedom for everyone and wanted to get away from the tyranny. Thomas Jefferson was the most important of all the founding fathers just for the statement that all men are created equal. The walls are filled with carved giant letters for quotations from Jefferson's writings. Jefferson was a renowned scholar of his time. The intellectual culture that he pursued, some say, is being left behind. And I think his sentiments on educating the people generally are being lost throughout, you know, besides just moral decay, just intellectual decay. Uh, we are having a big divide between the people who know a lot and the ones who don't care to learn. And it's just bringing down the nation as a whole because nobody's trying to understand the world around them and that's really just causing our downfall here. Included along the memorial walls is an excerpt from the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson's most famous work, and the one that guides and preserves American heritage in which so many around the world find comfort. There's a space for every culture and you can um, get to know other people from other places, um, get to understand what they do, what they think about. And as you sit on the steps of Jefferson's memorial, you can take a look at another founding father's monument, George Washington. It's in a direct line from the White House. President Roosevelt, who signed off on the construction of the Jefferson Memorial in 1943, ordered trees to be cut down so that the view from the White House would be enhanced. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A Democratic senator says we can't ignore that there are biological differences between men and women. This was in regards to a so-called masculinity crisis that he says the left has to address. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy took to Twitter after reading of Boys and Men. The book addresses an apparent crisis among men, which some say leads to less masculinity and higher rates of depression and suicide. In addressing the book and possible solutions, Murphy stated that we cannot avoid the biological and evolutionary differences between men and women. This contrasts recent theories that have led some to subscribe to the idea that there are no differences between men and women. Among the issues Murphy addresses in his series of tweets is that boys these days are much more likely to get bad grades in school than girls and not complete college and that most wages for men are lower today than they were 50 years ago, while women's wages have risen across the board. When talking about solutions for that, Murphy says progressives shouldn't think men and masculinity is just something the right talks about. There is something profound happening with American men, and the left should address it with more responsible solutions. Murphy says there are things the right gets wrong on the issues as well as the left, indicating both sides should work together to find solutions. Welcome back. In a surprising turn of events, the Department of Homeland Security has announced plans to build 20 more miles of the U.S.-Mexico border wall. And this goes directly against President Biden's promise not to build another foot of the wall. NDD's Jason Perry brings us the details. The Department of Homeland Security has given the green light for U.S. Customs and Border Protection to build 20 miles of border wall. DHS says it's obligated by law to do so unless Congress takes action to cancel it. But with Republicans holding a majority in the House, the odds for new border wall construction getting canceled is quite low. So how did this come about? In 2019, when former President Trump was in office, over $1.3 billion were appropriated by Congress to build the border wall. And since President Biden took office, a large portion of those border wall funds that were allocated by the Department of Defense were returned to the Pentagon. 
Now Customs and Border Protection still has an estimated $190 million remaining in fiscal year 2019 funding. And DHS is legally mandated to use the remaining fiscal year 2019 funds for their appropriated purpose, which is building the U.S.-Mexico border wall, specifically in the Rio Grande Valley. CBP will also replace deteriorated borders in parts of Arizona and California. Joe Biden was candidate. He said not one inch of more, you know, of extra fence would be built once he took over. I spoke with Mark Krikorian, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, to get his take on it. It's two and a half years after they took over, so it seems like they should have, uh, you know, come to this conclusion a while ago. Nonetheless, that's why they're doing this, not because they have some newfound commitment to Donald Trump's conception of what the border should be like. And he added this. What I think most people already understand is that a border wall alone isn't going to work if the people who get past it are rewarded with being able to stay. You have to change the incentives. And this administration has not meaningfully changed the incentives. So an extra 20 miles or so of wall might help a little bit in a particular area that they're put up. It's not going to fundamentally change anything. And as Texas border communities are overwhelmed by the constant flow of illegal immigration, Texas has now dropped off its second busload of immigrants in Los Angeles. Mayor Karen Bass's spokesperson said that the city believes in treating everyone with respect and dignity. Not all of the illegal immigrants are planning to stay in Los Angeles. Some continued on to places like Las Vegas, Oakland, San Francisco, and Seattle. Jason Perry, NTD News. Now on to immigration. Florida is taking action on immigration at the state level. A new law aims to make it harder for employers to hire or recruit illegal immigrants. To understand the impact of this, we spoke with Julio Fuentes, the president and CEO of Florida's Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Julio Fuentes, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So this law just went into effect on Saturday. What are the immediate impacts on businesses that you might see here? Well, we have been seeing the impact since the bill was signed. Um, you have plenty of uh, the construction industry, the agricultural industry, uh, literally seeing work sites dwindling as far as workers just not showing up for work, leaving the state. So we have been seeing that lead up to, to the law actually coming into place here on Saturday. And how do you see this impacting illegal immigration in the state? Well, and that's the interesting part about it. Plenty of um, sheriffs, you know, uh, in Miami-Dade County, over in uh, Hillsborough County, which is the Tampa area, they've already come out, sheriffs publicly have said, uh, that they don't see themselves doing anything different than their day-to-day -day duties as they have been for, you know, for, for ages. Because um, this is really a federal issue. Um, they came out with these statements to try and bring down the heat, just uh, the concerns of, of, of these illegals that are that are here in the state of Florida. Uh, we understand what the governor was trying to accomplish with this particular law in the legislature, but um, I think the lead up and the definition, defining of what the law really means, um, is is has been has been the problem, and that's what we have been doing at the Florida State Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. We've launched a campaign a truth and myth campaign, if you will, kind of really just talking about what can happen if you do get pulled over 
and you no longer can show a valid driver's license from another state. Well, you will get a fine. You're not going to get arrested. You're not going to get deported. Um, and that's the myths that are being heard and told out there. And what's scaring people to leave the state, rightfully so, if that's what you're hearing. So that's been our job here for the last couple of weeks and will continue to be uh, for, I don't know, the next few months or so, just getting out these troops uh, behind this bill. And Julio, to your earlier point, it seems some businesses are having a hard time hiring enough workers. So what can businesses do to ensure they have enough workers? Well, I think, like I just mentioned, they really need to talk about the truth behind this bill. It's not uh, it's, it's not going to be the wild, wild west by no means. People, you know, buses are not going to be pulling up at job sites, you know, uh, deporting people. Um, and the other thing is E-Verify, which is part of this uh, new law, um, it's only for employees that have 25 employees or more. It's not just your regular small business owner, you know, that's, that's really not understanding what's happening here. Um, and also the cost factor. Everybody thinks because of, you know, the economy that we're in today, inflation, this is going to be another hit to my bottom line. I need to E-Verify everyone. That's not true. E-Verify is a free federal system. So there is no cost to E-Verify employees moving forward. Um, so... I think that's the job of our job to relay this information to various companies out there and then for them to obviously explain it to their workers. And we've also been going out to job sites as well because a lot of these folks just speak Spanish, of course, and uh, we have plenty of people on staff that, you know, have been going out to some of these job sites and giving workshops, if you will, around this bill. And what about, say, raising wages to make it more attractive for countering, say, the heat outside? That's something that has been discussed, but again, the times that we're living in right now with inflation and, and there was really no um, leadway into into this bill kind of coming into fruition. There was a lot of talk about it, of course. Um, lots of folks thought that it was, you know, kind of a play into what Governor DeSantis is going to do next and run for president, but um, nobody really understood the impact that, that, it, that it would have. So. Um, yeah, I mean, that's always something that might be attractive, but now that's a question of going back to your numbers and figuring out what is that, that sweet spot to get somebody up to climb the roof and, and lay down tiles in 150-degree weather. But that is definitely an option. And given all that, do you see other states watching how this law will play out in Florida to maybe potentially implement similar policies? I think so. Unfortunately, I think so. And and. Rightfully so, we need to point the fingers at the federal government. This is why this has happened. This is why Governor DeSantis did what he'd had to do for this bill, what he felt he had to do for this bill, because there's nothing happened up in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, we're going to see probably other states look at what we have done, maybe do something a little bit more aggressive, not so aggressive. Uh, but undoubtedly, I do think you will see other states follow suit as what Florida did this year. Well, Julio Fuentes, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. And on the economy, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen plans to travel to Beijing on Thursday. This would be the second trip by a top U.S. official in recent weeks. Here's more on the scheduled visit. A senior Treasury official said Sunday that Yellen will meet with senior Chinese officials on a broad range of issues. Those include U.S. concerns about the impact of China's new anti-spying law on foreign firms that operate there. They also say Yellen's visit is part of a push by President Joe Biden to stabilize the relationship between the world's two largest economies and minimize the risk of mistakes when disagreements arise. 
China's finance ministry on Monday confirmed Yellen's visit from July 6th to the 9th. It comes just weeks after Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visited Beijing and agreed with Chinese leader Xi Jinping to ensure the two countries' rivalry does not veer into conflict. Biden later referred to Xi as a dictator, resulting in loud protests from China, but analysts say the remark had little impact on efforts to improve ties. As the world's two largest economies, we have a responsibility to work together on global issues. According to the Treasury official who spoke on condition of anonymity, Yellen plans to tell Beijing that Washington will continue to defend human rights and its own national security interests through targeted actions against China, but wants to work together on urgent challenges like climate change and debt distress faced by many countries. The official declined to give details on which Chinese officials Yellen would meet. Coming up, fireworks, a favorite July 4th pastime, but safety experts urge caution as playing with fire or explosives can be deadly. And wood-burning stoves are worsening pollution. That's what attorneys general from 10 different states say. They now plan to sue the Biden administration over its standards for such stoves. More when we return. Firework sales are expected to reach record levels this 4th of July, according to the American Pyrotechnics Association. And officials are asking the public to stay safe as they celebrate. NTD's Tyler Castillo reports. Tyler Castillo here at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, where officials are handing out precautions for the upcoming 4th of July holiday. Fireworks signify celebration, and it's no different for America's Independence Day. But officials are saying to avoid handling illegal fireworks and instead go to a professional display. Over in Silicon Valley, Dr. Clifford Schechter, director at the only burn and trauma center in the San Francisco Bay Area, says they typically get one emission per day, but... This season it can be upwards of two to five people a day. So it's a significant influx. And uh, it, as, as mentioned, it's all types of injuries too. It's motor vehicle, uh, you know, collisions, it's, it's pedestrian accidents. Uh, so uh, we, we see a massive influx, influx of all types of trauma. And unfortunately, drugs and alcohol are usually the common denominator for a lot of it. Duncan Reno, a patient at the center, had part of his body burned while celebrating his daughter's engagement. He said an oil-based fire pit exploded in front of him. When he went to go put the one in there, this time it just it, it exploded, it flashed, it basically flashed toward me. And because of the pants that I was wearing, my wife was sitting right next to me, and she had nothing but cotton on, and you could see the oil that was on her, but she never caught on fire. Nobody else caught on fire. I caught on fire. Reno said the material of his clothes made him catch on fire. While Rano's injury wasn't from fireworks, he shares his experience. Well, we get so used to understanding the fires that are around us, either our barbecues or our fire pits or all that stuff. And the thing is, is that everybody should just take a step back, take an inventory of what they have, and really see how if all that's working properly, because it's an instant. That's what Liz and I were saying. It was an instant in our lives changed. He says he was one of the luckier people. Officials say that over 74% of firework-related injuries occur around the July 4th holiday. And while this year's rainstorms helped California's drought, 
the fire department said the landscape is still recovering from years of drought and are still prone to fires. In San Jose, California, Todd Castillo, NTD News. Multiple attorneys general plan to sue the Biden administration over wood-burning stoves. The states argue burning wood is worsening pollution. Here's what they say. Attorneys general from 10 states plan to sue the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. The states argue the EPA has failed to review and ensure emission standards for residential wood-burning stoves. The states involved are Alaska, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. They say the EPA allowing the continued sale of wood-burning stoves without ensuring emission standards could worsen pollution, and that EPA programs that encourage people to trade in older stoves hadn't improved air quality. The attorneys general sent a joint letter to the EPA saying, if newer wood heaters do not meet cleaner standards, then programs to change out old wood heaters may provide little health benefits at significant public cost. The EPA declined to comment on pending litigation. In February, the EPA's Office of Inspector General released a report on the EPA's performance standards for residential wood heaters. The report found that the standards were flawed and said the agency has approved methods that lack clarity and allow too much flexibility. And as a result, certification tests may not be accurate, do not reflect real-world conditions, and may result in some wood heaters being certified for sale that emit too much particulate matter pollution. The 10 attorneys general in their letter issued a 60-day notice with intent to sue if the EPA doesn't take the necessary steps. PFAS. If that word isn't in your vocabulary, it probably should be. They're also known as forever chemicals. They've been linked to cancer and they're inside the bodies of 99% of Americans. The government has recently taken action to address this, but one health professor says it's too little, too late. NTD's Sean Marshall explains. EPA is proposing a new rule to address PFAS, also known as forever chemicals. It wants companies to report which of their products contain PFAS. PFAS refers to a group of man-made chemicals that have been widely used in a variety of products. They're resistant to heat, water, and oil, which makes them very useful. It can be found in products like cookware, clothing, packaging, cleaning products, makeup, and dental floss, to name a few. But recent studies have linked PFAS to cancer, birth defects, and hormone irregularities, which is why governments everywhere are taking action. It's a tiny step and just a little late because as of today, there are 300 million plus people in the country, but more than 200 million are consuming PFAS in drinking water. And 99% American people actually have PFAS in their blood today. Health professor Jagdish Kubchandani says that different agencies and states should work together on attacking PFAS and products directly. He also says the government should focus on drinking water. 200 million plus people are consuming PFAS in drinking water. Why don't we attack that first instead of asking companies to track these first, which is a next step. But for now, we should focus on water, food and the household day-to-day -day materials. The proposed rule may cover over a thousand types of PFAS chemicals. That's out of more than 12,000 different types. Companies would have to report products containing PFAS made or imported between 2011 and the effective date of the rule. There would be no exemptions for small businesses. Sean Marshall, NTD News. 
The Biden administration recently announced a $7 billion grant for low-income communities to expand residential solar energy, with Bernie Sanders calling it solar for all. We hear from an analyst about the reliability of this form of energy. Tommy Waller, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. To begin, how reliable are these renewables as an energy source? So, you know, renewables like wind and solar is what we're referring to and at the, at the moment are they're intermittent forms of power, right? Which means they only work when the sun's shining or when the wind is blowing. Now, that can be really helpful in certain scenarios, right? At the household individual level, if you have battery backup, uh, then that can provide power for you uh, when the rest of the grid uh, goes down. But the problem is, Tiffany, that a lot of the investment being made right now by the Biden administration in these renewables, wind and solar, these big projects, uh, are to apply those to the bulk power grid, to put them on in large, uh, you know, forms where there is no battery backup storage. They're backed up by other types of generation, like just-in-time natural gas. And in that way, they really are not reliable at all and can, can actually harm the resilience of the grid uh, in, in many ways. And Tommy, what about when there are natural disasters? For instance, there was a solar farm in Nebraska that was crippled by hail. How do we ensure our nation has a reliable energy source? Well, when it comes to you know energy assurance, one of the most significant factors is just physics alone, right? Like we have to do things that actually will work. So for example, at the moment, our country is shutting down large generation sources like coal-fired power plants and, and, in fact, nuclear plants, uh, fossil fuel plants. And the reality is that a lot of these, coal, for example, nuclear, they have something called on-site fuel, right? They, there's a pile of coal right outside that plant. A nuclear power plant has many, many months of fuel, nuclear fuel. And so when we're looking at how we think about the resilience of our energy and our energy assurance, that fuel is so important. And so it's not to degrade the the sun or the wind because that can provide power, but we have to do what's common sense. And we also have to worry about securing it against all hazards, like you just mentioned, hail. Uh, But hail is just just one of many things that can damage our infrastructure. uh, and, And we need to be cognizant of that. And there are some concerns that this administration is really pushing for the green and renewable energies while not putting as many resources into securing our current energy grid. In your opinion, are the federal government's priorities correct? Uh, Tiffany, no, I don't think the federal government's priorities are correct at all right now when it comes to energy security. In fact, this is something that I've briefed the Secretary of Energy twice about uh, personally uh, when it comes to energy security. So. You know, if if we want to look at the sun as a source of power, which we should, right, and do it in common sense ways, we also have to recognize that the sun can be catastrophically harmful to our grid, solar weather, natural form of electromagnetic pulse. And this is something I've briefed the secretary on. The the price tag to to fix that problem, to to take away that vulnerability for the country is just about four billion dollars, right? So right now, the Biden administration's investing $7 billion into this solar um, you know, investment that we just talked about. When there is a solar storm threat that could decimate our grid, turn the lights off for a very long time for all of us, 
and think about who are the most affected, the most vulnerable populations. The same ones that they're saying that they're investing in with these solar projects are the ones that would suffer the most and the fastest if we lose the grid. And yet I've seen not a dime invested in protecting against solar weather. And that's a threat that we cannot deter. And expanding on that, some experts are warning that these green energy pushes could actually weaken our energy supply. How should we deal with this? You know, Tiffany, we used to, uh, in our Secure the Grid Coalition, our effort to try to secure this most critical infrastructure, we said there was four main threats, right? Cyber threats, physical sabotage, electromagnetic pulse, and solar weather I just told you about. Well, there's two more right now, and it goes to your question. The fifth one is supply chain, right? Well, we know the Chinese, for example, are selling us uh, hardware that, that uh, is vulnerable, they've baked in vulnerabilities. The sixth one is exactly what we're talking about right now. It is detrimental government policies, right? And so when, when you look at what the Biden administration is doing right now, trying to electrify everything, right? Take away natural gas stoves. Uh, and, and just huge push for electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging stations, putting more demand on a grid that cannot produce enough power as it is, shutting down baseload power generators like coal, fossil fuel, nuclear power, and then putting all the investments into intermittent forms of power that only work when the sun shines and the wind blows. That government policy becomes more of a risk than the five other threat vectors we just talked about. And that's why you have states right now. I mean, there are people in ERCOT in Texas that are that are sweating, both literally because it's in incredibly hot there and figuratively looking at the rising temperatures and hoping that their grid will be able to, to generate enough power for the demand. And that's all self-induced by putting investments, too many investments into wind and solar and shutting down too many baseload generators like nuclear coal and fossil fuel. Tommy Waller, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Coming up, airstrikes and hand-to-hand combat in Palestine. Israeli forces say they're trying to uproot a terror haven. But why is the effort focused in Janine, and what should we expect next? And a French mayor and town residents hold a gathering outside a burned-out town hall. The community is decrying the destruction caused in the widespread rioting. More on that when we return. Welcome back. Zooming in on the Middle East, Israel's military has launched a major operation. Palestine reports eight people killed and around 100 injured as tanks drive through the city. Israel reports an additional 10 airstrikes targeting a terrorist command center as well as weapons manufacturing sites. To understand what's going on, we spoke with Aryeh Lightstone, a former special envoy for the Abraham Accords. Arya Lightstone, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. So Israeli forces just launched the biggest military offensive since 2002 in the city of Jenin in the West Bank. They're saying this isn't going after Palestinians. This is a counterterrorism effort. Give us a sense of what is actually unfolding there. So it, it's very clear this is not going after Palestinians. It is trying to uh, unroot uh, a terror haven that's been there now for not months, 
or years, but almost a decade of rapidly producing active actions of terror coming from Janine. And if you've seen the news, as you report the news, uh, coming out of the West Bank, Samaria area in the last 18 months, uh, there have been tens of terror attacks perpetrated from that area. And since the Palestinian Authority is supposed to be exerting security control there, and they've chosen not to or are unable to, Israel is unfortunately forced to go into Janine with great risk to the young men and women who are going in there in order to unroot this terror that has taken place there. And expanding on that, what is the significance of Janine? Why target this area? But Janine is a very uh, important city in the West Bank, in the Samaria area, heavily populated, has the opportunity to sort of be a Manhattan of the West Bank in terms of commerce, in terms of the age demographics, in terms of sort of the excitement of the area. It is a place that could and really should be flourishing economically and via other opportunities. Instead, it's turned to a place of mass unemployment, mass discontent. And when there's mass unemployment, mass discontent, uh, then they have turned, unfortunately, in a great way to uh, fear and terror. And uh, I hate to bring this part up, but if your viewers have watched the Netflix Sauda uh, and have seen sort of the street-to-street fighting that is taking place or is portrayed in that film, that's pretty accurate. And this is hand-to-hand, street-to-street, house-to-house, and alley-to-alley combat by the IDF soldiers where they're taking great risk to avoid damaging civilians, trying to root out the very uh, source of the terror. And on that note, is there any ideas of where the sources of terror are coming from? Is it Iran? What are the forces here? So thank you for asking that, because that's what makes this different and slightly unique. In the past, the players were really extreme Islamic Jihad, which took its form of Hamas. And normally the Palestinian Authority, which is supposed to be the moderate factor in the West Bank, was able, together with Israel, to keep Hamas down to a limit. This is not Hamas. This is Iranian terror cells that have grown up in Janine are acting with impunity to the degree that they even have shoulder-fired missiles that could be launched from Janine. This is completely and totally untenable for the state of Israel to be able to have, because this puts every civilian uh, in all of Israel within reach of these terror activities. And this is classic Iran expanding their circle uh, of malfeasance around the region. And Arya, do you expect the violence to escalate? Where do you see this going from here? Well, here's the big challenge. You have Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president, I think, in his 18th year of a four-year term uh, of the Palestinian Authority, who people are counting down the days until he disappears. Uh, There is no real authority there. And when you've got a vacuum, like we've discussed so many times beforehand, it's not like the best people rise up to fill that vacuum. Right now, you're seeing the very worst, and the Iranians are taking advantage of this. Israel does not want to be in Janine. Israel does not want to be taking this action. They would love that the Palestinian Authority would go ahead and educate the the young men and women there to be able to have a lifestyle of success and prosperity. But unfortunately, it's gone exactly the opposite way. It is an area devoid of leadership, and Israel will be there, I think, to make sure that their citizens remain safe for the long run. Arya Lightstone, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for having me. CIA Director William Burns says last month's mutiny in Russia was proving challenging to the Russian state. At a UK press conference Saturday, he said it shows President Putin's war in Ukraine is a strategic failure. Entities Kostaminess has more. 
At the address in shipping Norton, England, Burns went on to say that Russia exposed its military weakness, which will damage the Russian economy for years to come, while the NATO military alliance was growing bigger and stronger. It is striking that Prigozhin preceded his actions with a scathing indictment of the Kremlin's mendacious rationale for the invasion of Ukraine and of the Russian military leadership's conduct of the war. The impact of those words and those actions will play out for some time, a vivid reminder of the corrosive effect of Putin's war on his own society and his own regime. According to Burns, the mutiny was an internal Russian affair, adding the United States has had and will have no part in. In his speech, Burns also spoke about Sino-US economic relations. In today's world, no country wants to find itself at the mercy of a cartel of one for critical minerals and technologies, especially a country that has demonstrated the will and capacity to deepen and weaponize those dependencies. The answer to that is not to decouple from an economy like China's, which would be foolish, but to sensibly de-risk and diversify by securing resilient supply chains, protecting our technological edge, and investing in industrial capacity. Burns also added that this affection in Russia with the war in Ukraine was creating a rare opportunity to recruit spies, which the U.S. would seize and not let go to waste. Cost MNS, NTD News. A French town is recouping itself after rioters damaged the town hall and other public buildings. Residents and officials gathered on Monday in Persan to assess the way forward. The population was very touched and very moved, unfortunately, by what happened to us during these last nights. It's also normal to take time with them to be by their side, to be with them to explain things and to show them that the mayor's office is still standing, that the municipal teams are still standing, and that we are going to continue to rebuild our town hall, our municipal police, and of course revive our conservatory, which suffered a little less damage, but damaged nonetheless. The Pearson mayor gave a short speech and a violinist performed music during a brief ceremony. Groups of youth attacked the town hall and municipal police station, partially burning them down. The town's conservatory was also damaged. It's one of 99 town halls and other public buildings that the French government says were attacked in the riots. The violence flared in French, French cities after a 17-year-old was shot dead last Tuesday in a suburb of Paris. The grandmother of the teen has called for the riots to stop. The last surviving member of the French commando unit that waited ashore on D-Day died on Monday. He was 100 years old. He fought alongside Allied troops to free France from Nazi forces. Leon Gauthier was one of nearly 180 French Green Berets who stormed the Normandy beaches defended by Hitler's forces in 1944. He and Allied fighters secured a German bunker before pushing inland. Later in life, Gauthier would return to live only a few hundred meters from the bunker. He had been too young to join the army during World War II, so he enrolled in the Navy. As Germans swept across the northern half of France in 1940, he was on board one of the last French warships to sail for Britain to join the Free French Forces. A German court is hearing a case about COVID-19 vaccine injury. A 58-year-old is suing vaccine provider BioNTech. He's seeking around $164,000 in compensation. 
Yes, this is the first date in the hearing against the company BioNTech. It is about the issue of vaccine injury. The plaintiff lost his eyesight in the right eye after being vaccinated. Everything points to it being caused by the vaccination, and we want to get him a compensation for his pain and suffering. Also seeking public acknowledgement of the damage. His lawyer said there are around 300 other vaccine injury cases coming to court soon. Sources have said some of the EU's bulk purchase agreements with vaccine makers contain full or partial liability waivers. It could force EU governments to bear some of the costs of damage compensation. According to BioNTech, some 1.5 billion people received the COVID-19 shot across the world, including more than 64 million people in Germany. Coming up, former five-time Wimbledon champion Venus Williams, now 43, made her 24th appearance at the All England Club today. We'll have how she fared. One step closer to the moon, NASA's robotic lunar rover completes a test drive in California. It's bound for a special mission on the south pole of the moon in late 2024. Welcome back. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin, who has an update on day one at Wimbledon. That's right, Tiff. Wimbledon started today with men's favorite Novak Djokovic rolling to a straight sets win over Pedro Cashin. Though Djokovic is seated second behind Carlos Alcaraz, he's won the last four dating to 2018 and has seven Wimbledon titles overall. Meanwhile, this season he's already halfway to a calendar Grand Slam, having won the Australian and French Opens already. On the women's side, top-seeded Iga Sviatek rolled to a straight sets win over Zhu Lin of China. Sviatek, ranked number one in the world, has never made it past the fourth round at the All England Club. Elsewhere on the courts, 43-year-old former champion Venus Williams lost to Alina Svitolina in straight sets. Williams, who was making her 24th appearance at the All England Club, last won the title there in 2008, one of five overall. And in baseball news, the All-Star rosters have been finalized with pitchers and reserves announced over the weekend. While the Texas Rangers landed a league-high four starters, the Atlanta Braves have the most selections overall with eight. Other notable selections include Dodgers ace Clayton Kershaw, who will be making his 10th All-Star team, tying him for fifth most all-time among pitchers. And finally, Angel star Shohei Otani, who was the first to make it, both as a pitcher and a hitter when he was duly selected in 2021, has now done it three years in a row with his selections this season. Otani leads the majors with 31 home runs and 68 RBIs as a hitter, while as a pitcher, he has the sport's highest strikeout rate as well as the lowest hit rate in the game. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, more baseball. Eight games are on, including those red-hot Atlanta Braves who've won eight in a row now. They play at Cleveland. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, over to you. The flying car has long been a staple of science fiction, and that long-awaited dream of the future may be a step closer to coming true. 
It's the first vehicle of its kind to win legal approval to fly in the U.S., and it's called the Armada Model Zero. Aleph Automotive said its Model A vehicle aircraft is the first flying vehicle that is drivable on public roads and can park like a normal car. It's the first fully electric vehicle to get U.S. government approval that can both fly and travel on roads. It has vertical takeoff and landing capabilities and will be able to carry one or two occupants. Its range will be 200 miles on the road and 110 miles in the air. The company expects to sell each vehicle for $300,000, with the first delivery projected for the end of 2025. It will only be allowed to go roughly 25 miles per hour on the road and still needs National Highway Traffic Safety Administration approval. It's been 50 years since humans last walked on the moon. Now, NASA has planned a series of Artemis missions to return, laying the groundwork for sending astronauts to Mars. As part of the preparation, NASA scientists in California are test driving their newest lunar rover. NASA's Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California, just debuted the stripped-down version of its long-anticipated Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover, or VIPER for short. It has the same traction and the same weight, and so its, it's hill-climbing characteristics and its rock-climbing characteristics are the same, uh, or as close as we can get it to the actual rover. The VIPER is about the size of a golf cart. This test robotic model running on Earth is like a stunt double to the real rover, except it weighs only one-sixth of the actual lunar counterpart to simulate and accommodate the gravitational difference. This mobile robot will land on the moon in late 2024 for a 100-day mission. Once he reaches the moon, scientists at NASA's Ames Research Center will be behind the controls, driving the $500 million rover along the moon's south pole. We know that there are parts of the moon, uh, particularly around the south pole, uh, where there is water ice uh, buried and kind of mixed into the, the lunar soil. The main purpose of Viper is to look for resources on the moon that can be used. In particular, it will be looking for water. But it's no easy task. It takes, it's a three-second delay uh, on the from the speed of light to the moon and back, um, and you only have what views the cameras on board can give you. This forces the solar-powered rover to go at a very slow speed of only half a mile per hour. Another challenge is to survive the extreme temperature. So when you're in direct sunlight, there's, there's no atmosphere to protect you. You know, the, the, moon, uh, the moon rotates much more slowly than Earth, uh, you know, once a month. And so you spend two weeks at night, and it's extremely cold. NASA's plan is to build a base on the South Pole and have astronauts live there for an extended amount of time. Being able to use water resources on site will mark a critical step forward for NASA's Artemis mission to establish a long-term presence on the surface of the moon. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.